The Velvet Hammer, an inside look at trial lawyer life with Karen Kohler. Real life stories about fighting the good fight. We're here today with Paul Stripmatter, my partner, my idol, my darling friend. Oh, aren't you sweet? <laughs> and uh, it just because you can't see this visual, he is wearing a fairly magenta shirt that completely matches my office. A little bit more purpley magenta, but it's quite striking. Very nice choice. And did you notice the pin? What is a pin? Oh, 50. 50 years practicing law. I'm a member of the Washington State Bar Association. When did that happen? Yesterday. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Thank you. Did you ever think this day would come? Never, ever, ever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe how old I am, if you want to know the truth. 50 I was, I was eight years old when you started <laughs> practicing law, <laughs> and I'm old. Um, well, we uh, are delighted to have you today, and this is an informal podcast. You just pretty much chit-chat about a lot of stuff. Okay. Um, but I have some legal questions and not such legal questions about you. And you have not told me what these questions are going to be. Nope. So, uh, it's, right. Nope. This is a freewheeling podcast. All right. Um, so first of all, how much do you like just talking without any notes? Well, I suppose it depends on the setting, but uh, I am very much uh, a note person. I, um, I spend a lot of time preparing uh, for depositions, for court arguments, uh, certainly for what I'm going to do in the courtroom during a trial, and I prepare and uh, I have a sign in my office that says there are three keys to uh, successful trial lawyers. Number one is preparation. Number two may surprise you, it's preparation. And number three is preparation. And I truly believe in that. So I prepare too, but I don't use notes. I know you don't. And, uh, we, and I like no paper, you like paper. Big time paper. And. We've tried case together, at least one in federal court. Yes. Was it fun? Yes, it was, but I had my notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I cringe when you're up there without notes. Uh, but yes, we had, a, we had a great time. Right. Um, well, I thought we'd start off with a story. And just give us, I mean, in 50 years, how many cases do you think you've tried? Uh, personal injury cases, maybe uh, 75 or 80. But uh, when I started out as a young lawyer, I tried in, uh, quite a few criminal cases because we had to take appointments. So we were appointed by the court to back in those days. They didn't have a public defender office. And I tried a lot of divorce cases, believe it or not, uh, and learned a lot about being a trial lawyer from that, even though they were to the bench, not to the jury. So uh, at least 50 uh, divorce cases that I tried. Okay, before we get to the PI stuff, do you have any favorite trial that you remember a moment from when you were a criminal defense lawyer or a divorce lawyer? Um, yes, I remember one uh, quite vividly in a divorce case. Um, I was representing a woman uh, and custody of her three children were involved. And she was an employee of the bank, which was in the same building complex as our office. So uh, 
I mean, she was a friend, uh, certainly acquainted with her, and, and was the general manager of the bank where, where we banked. And um, there were allegations that were being made that she was an unfit mother because um, she, uh, uh, whatever, was, was, was not doing a good job in uh, raising the kids. And Gladys Phillips was the attorney on the other side. I just love Gladys to death. She was a great woman, a great trial lawyer. And she could really be tough in the courtroom. And she was cross-examining my client. And she says, and isn't it true that every Friday night you're going to parties at the Strip Matter Law Firm? And I jumped up to object because, number one, I knew it wasn't true. And number two, I thought it was inappropriate. And as I stood up, it dawned on me, because we do have office parties periodically on Friday evenings. She was telling her husband that she was going to parties at our office when she wasn't and was outdating somebody else. <laughs> and uh, boy, did that knock me for a loop. <laughs> I will never forget that. Never forget that. Yeah, your, your notes were no, of no help for you back no then. No help whatsoever. <laughs> well, that was a shocker. <laughs> All right. Well, fast forward to plane of personal injury. And while you're talking, I'm going to text someone to get us some water. Okay. Uh, but tell us, tell us just a, a moment in time that we can just see of, of a court, courtroom experience. Well, um, I think the most moving, uh, inspirational, and memorable event was um, a case where I was representing uh, Sean Haina. And Sean was a... Um, 15-year-old uh, young man who had uh, been on a motorcycle and had crashed. And he didn't have a helmet on, and he suffered a, uh, a shearing injury to his brain, which left him um, in a horrible uh, condition. He could not speak. Uh, he could not take food through his mouth. He could move his limbs, but he couldn't coordinate uh, that movement. And... Uh, I had been putting on background information about all the medical care and what his limitations were, but he was not in the courtroom. The jury had not yet seen them. And uh, I had his teacher, who was a young special ed teacher on the stand, and she was describing how uh, they had first really had a big breakthrough in communications with Sean. Uh, up till then, they would ask him a question and he would move his head to either the left or the right with a yes or no answer. And one day, one evening, it dawned on her to put an alphabet up in front of him and have him spell out words so that he could say something, ask something. And so she had described this. And I said, well, would it help if Sean were here uh, and you demonstrated this to the jury? And she said, yes. And I walked over to the courtroom door, and uh, Sean was sitting outside and brought him in. And the jury was riveted uh, to see this young man. And part of my purpose was to show that this, he had a functioning brain. He was, he was living, but he was inside a cage that, that wouldn't allow him to do anything physically. So I wanted to put on this demonstration. So I said, all right, why don't you show us how you would do this with Sean? She said, okay. She said, all right, tell me, uh, young man, what is your name? So... She'd go uh, on the line that was A through F. He would say no. Uh, G through uh, R. 
uh, no, and then the next line would have an S, and he would say yes on S, she'd put up the S, and they went through that process. Very laborious, probably took four or five minutes at least to spell out Sean. And um, it was a good demonstration, I thought. Uh, and that was going to be the end of it. But she then turns to the jury and she says, well, that wasn't a very good example because I know his name is Sean. And I thought to myself, now, why did you do that? <laughs> you, you've undercut our, our demonstration. So I said, well, can you give us another example then? And she said, okay, what is your favorite sport? And then went through more than a 10-minute process for him to spell out football. Uh, another very good demonstration, and that was going to be the end of it. And uh, she then turned to the jury and said the same thing. Well, I already knew that his favorite sport was football. So without planning this in advance, no notes, Karen. <laughs> okay, no notes. I said, all right, I'll ask Sean a question. And uh, you can go through this. I said, Sean, would you tell your teacher what your cousin brought up to the nursing home to show you last week? Sean got very excited, very animated, and she said, oh, this is perfect. I don't know what this is, and so um, uh, we'll go through this demonstration. And the answer was, he brought up a dog. And so the letter D was in the first line, and she says, okay, is it the first letter, is it in the first line? And he said, no. And I went, oh, no, no, Sean, the D is in the first line. I'm saying this to myself. And... Uh, I thought, what, what is he doing? And so they go down, he puts up a P, which meant nothing to me. And uh, then she starts on the second line. And I walk back to his aide that was sitting in the audience. And I said, what is he doing? And she says, I don't know. You asked the question. And I'm, I'm very polite in the courtroom. Um, and so I had decided I'm, I'm going to stop this because it's, it's destroying what we were trying to show before. But as I walked up to do this, they were still trying to put a letter down. And so I waited and I waited. And by that point, they had put up a P, a U, and a P on the way to spelling puppy. The best way to describe what happened was after the jury was excused, the judge said, counsel, there was not a dry eye in this courtroom except plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel you callous bastard. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so emotional. Every single juror was crying. I, I get emotional telling the story. Um, it blew the case wide open. It just was so powerful and, and showed that Sean was a functioning human being in his brain. He just couldn't do it physically because of the brain injury that he had. So I will go to my grave remembering that day. Wow. So I, I, I've asked this question before, actually, of a reporter, and I'm going to ask it of you. How do you not cry in trial when there's that? And, and I mean, is it okay for a lawyer to cry? And how do you try not to cry? I try not to cry, but I do get emotional. Uh, and uh, I can show my emotion that the jury can see without having actual tears. Uh, and I don't plan this. I don't try to do this. It just happens. My voice will break and um, the jury can hear and, and can see the emotion that I'm expressing. And I've had the honor of representing a, a large number of 
seriously injured people whose lives have been so devastated by uh, the injuries that they have suffered. And I have learned their story and I'm their mouthpiece. I'm the one that's uh, trying to help them tell that story. And so, of course, I get emotional. And I think getting emotional is fine, but I don't think actually, to me, uh, crying is a good idea. I think it goes too far in the role of the attorney. What do you think about um, lawyers that crack jokes in trial? Um, I was in a trial recently where one of the lawyers cracked the joke every single time it was his turn. Oh, no, 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 no. Never, ever would I do that. I would never do it in a short trial. I would only be in a trial where we've become friends with the jury, uh, where we all collectively in the room are going through an experience together and where there can be a situation where uh, maybe some levity would be involved. I would never plan a joke, but just something would happen that... um, I, I would I would comment on or uh, going to say sometimes I've made comments or questions that have elicited laughter that uh, weren't meant to be jokes. But uh, I, I have done that at times, and I think there's a place for it, especially in longer trials. So someone who has done so many trials in 50 years <laughs> being a bar member, what are some of the tips that you have in terms of, um, um, or not even tips, but just thoughts that you have on how do you keep yourself healthy enough when you're in a trial and, and with all that intensity leading up to trial, how do you get through trials in a healthier, semi-healthy way? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's a great question. I, I certainly know a lot of lawyers who jog, and you do, um, and they uh, it helps them. I just am not into that, so that's not something I have done. Um, this may sound a little strange, but it gets back to this issue of preparation. If I'm not properly prepared, then it, it ties me up. I, then I really get nervous and I get scared. Generally, I'm not nervous, uh, in trial at all. I'm nervous before the trial starts. I'm nervous over the lunch hour. The minute the judge comes out and we start, I'm as cool as can be unless I'm not prepared. And if I'm not prepared, then, then I know I'm going to go through agony and, and uh, have some real problems. So well, that's the major motivator for me in the preparation, preparation, preparation theory and why I have everything worked out uh, with my notes. Anxiety uh, avoidance. Beyond that, I am also not a believer in staying up all night. I make sure that I get plenty of sleep. I always demand a lot of sleep. You do not. Uh, I do. Uh, How you go on the schedule you do uh, with the little amount of sleep that you seem to have, and I know that because of emails that you send me at 3 o'clock in the morning. I hate those timestamps on emails. I know, and I get them from you, and so I know that you're up. Uh, I I can't get by with eight hours. I need nine hours of sleep, and if I'm in trial, it might even be 10 hours. Now, the other 14 hours, I'm working like crazy on this case, but I do make sure I get a lot of sleep. That might be different from what other people would tell you, but I would say those are the two biggest factors for me. What are some of the things that defense lawyers do that just drive you totally bonkers? Well, if they don't keep their word, 
I am um, angry about it, and um, I won't give them much more uh, uh, room on the rope. Uh, uh, they do it a second time, and it's all over. It's, uh, it's an all-out war at that stage. And I hope that I never have uh, resorted to anything like that myself uh, uh, in response. But uh, that's, that's probably the, the, the biggest thing. I do remember uh, one case where I was um, also very unhappy. I had a young woman, uh, she was a young lawyer on the other side, and this was opening statement, and she got up and began talking about how fortunate the jurors were to become jurors. And uh, I thought that's kind of strange. And she said, I, I've always wanted to be a juror, but I, I've never been able to be. You know, I've, I finally got called for jury duty one time, and I was so excited, but I was pregnant at the time, and so I couldn't sit through this. And all of a sudden, I am clenching my teeth, and my, but I didn't object. Um, and I, she went on and on on this, uh, on this manner. Uh, I didn't say anything about it until uh, four weeks later. It was a lengthy trial, and we were getting ready uh, for a closing argument. And I walked over to her, and I said, what you did in opening, making this personal about you, is totally improper, against the rules. I did not object at that time. Don't do it today, or... I will be objecting, and uh, you're going to get in trouble with the court uh, as a result. She said, I had no plans of doing that. I went back and sat down, and I glanced over, and she had her notes, and she was n crossing out pages <laughs> of materials that she had planned. I, I was quite angry um, about that sort of a tactic. Yeah, and it can also backfire. I mean, it's so ingratiating. It, it, it was so inappropriate uh, Yes, it can backfire. Jurors are smart enough to know that that's inappropriate. Okay, so when I think about you, the way that you come across, you're you're like a, you know such a professor, such a scholarly student of the law and um, teacher of the law. Um, but do you ever lose your temper, or never? I got I lost my temper only one time that I can recall right now. I, maybe there was another one I honestly don't recall except one time. And I was representing a young man who was a paraplegic um, who was shot with a gun um, and hit him in the spinal cord. And we were suing the gun manufacturer because it was a defective uh, gun. And at one point, this was not in front of the jury, but at one point in the morning before we were gonna resume the trial, the defense counsel said to me that he thought my client was faking his injury. Let's say this is a young man, he was in his 20s, who's confined to a wheelchair, and I lost it. I was in his face, probably with spittle coming out of my mouth, yelling at him. That's the only time that I think that I ever did that, but I was so angry. And. I can't believe that they ever would say something like that, but they do. And I've, 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 I, I would add to my personal feelings about things that really irritate me about defense lawyers, beside not keeping their word, is belittling um, or somehow um, being very disrespectful to our clients. That's like a hot button for me. I won't allow it. Totally agree. Yeah, very inappropriate. 
All right. And also something that'll backfire on them, I think, in, uh, for the most part. Okay. So how, how would you describe your rise of stature in the plane of bar in terms of um, lessons that a, like a young lawyer could learn from that? Like, how do you go from being a divorce slash criminal defense lawyer in Hoquiam, uh, Washington to, you know, one of, if not the most respected lawyer in the state. By trying cases and proving yourself by trying cases and the results that you get from it. Now, I realize it's more difficult to try jury cases today. More of them are resolved through, we didn't even have a mediation process when I started 50 years ago. Um, so I tried a lot of cases as a young lawyer and I had a lot of um, a good success. Uh, and the more success you have, the better cases you end up getting hired on and the more opportunity you have to, uh, to uh, both hone your skills and show uh, people that, that you have uh, uh, good skills as a trial lawyer. And then don't be afraid, uh, to, don't be confined just by the theories that everyone else has. Uh, in 1974, I'd only been practicing law for uh, about four years at that point, and there was a situation where a car with four teenagers in it uh, on a Friday night, and according to witnesses, was traveling somewhere between 60 and 90 miles an hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone, jumped a curb, and hit a pole. Now, there was a... there was a uh, light standard there and it was a breakaway light standard uh, designed that if it were hit over a certain speed it would shear off so that the impact would not um, destroy the vehicle and more importantly the people that are in the vehicle and uh, they had had this happen multiple times so the the uh, the same the same pole the same pole and so the the highway engineer, I put that in quotes because he really wasn't qualified as a highway engineer for the city of Aberdeen, decided he was tired of that. So he went out there and put a, a what they called a husky stub pole down in the ground, put a hot water tank over it, filled that with cement, put a reflector on it. So by golly, no one was going to knock over his pole. And um, my clients came along in that uh, vehicle uh, after a party, uh, no alcohol involved, but uh, they hit that thing and it uh, killed two of the occupants and greatly uh, injured two more. And I ended up with three of those uh, people. Of course, we didn't sue the, uh, or pardon me, we didn't have the uh, driver as a client. Obviously, he was at fault. That was in the days when contributory negligence was a complete fault. But I thought the city was at fault there. My father told me I couldn't win that case. Every single lawyer in Grace Harbor County said, you can't sue the government for causing a traffic accident. And I said, well, I learned in law school duty and a breach and, and injury. It seems to me as though um, that's all here. So we tried the case. I won. I got a great verdict. They appealed. I won on appeal, which really established that sort of highway design law and Karen, as you know, our firm does a lot of highway design cases mm -hmm. to this day because of that case. That was probably the case that really propelled me uh, uh, in the legal community because 
then everyone was asking me to give CLE presentations on how to bring highway design cases.